podcast on this Monday evening. With me, as always, we have my co-host, Peter Ray Allison. Good evening, everyone. And he returns. He returneth, as he said he would, Mike Hollick. Thank you guys so much for having me back. It, was a, it was a pleasure last time. Yeah, yeah, an absolute pleasure. Yeah. So, Mike, we have so much that's gone on. And when was it you were with us? Was it January? Was it January? It was the tail end of January, I yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's, only, yeah. It was... it's only been a few months, but a lot, a lot has happened. So, obviously, we spent an entire um, hour and a half, nearly two hours, I think, talking about the OGL. Loads has happened mm-hmm. with that since. And then, obviously, we're talking about your your new kickstarter which sounds very exciting so it is a wild one we got to talk about it just a little bit last time and i'm thrilled to kind of get into this this uh uh ridiculous project we've we've bitten off okay so what well dealer's choice in fact in fact in fact for for anybody who wasn't listening um to the to the first episode with you in it um who is it uh who are you what do you do what's your what's your thing yeah, so uh, my name is Mike. I am the editor-in-chief of Mage Hand Press. Uh, we make content for D&D 5e. Uh, our, our first big book was a sci-fi conversion called Dark Matter, and our next book was Valda's Spire of Secrets, which was a you know uh, a book that just expanded 5e with 10 new base classes and 150 subclasses. And now we're on to a project called The Book of Extinction, which takes uh, real extinct animals and then reimagines them as fantasy creatures that you can play within your D&D game. Uh, it's uh, a D&D book that has an actual science consultant. We partnered with the the Center for Biological Diversity. Oh, wow. um, it's really neat. Um, and uh, uh, in addition to all of that, uh, earlier this year, I was one of the voices helping to uh, uh, push back against Wizards of the Coast during the OGL 1.1 chaos. I wrote an open letter that got uh, uh, over over 75,000 signatures. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and since then we've had, we had these major developments, um, that Wizards of the Coast, not just like backed down, they, they took the existing 5e, uh, uh, content, the SRD and put it straight into, uh, creative commons, which, which basically gives us D and D 5e forever, no matter what they do. I mean, they backed off so hard. I mean, it's, it is an unmitigated victory for open gaming everywhere. Okay. So, and, uh, well, I, I was like, dealer's choice. We can talk about the Kickstarter first, and we can talk about D and D. But like, we're there. We're kind of talking about it, so we'll do that, we and then we'll about, we'll, yeah. we'll, yeah. we'll we'll land with your your glorious um your glorious Kickstarter at the end. So sure, well, we talked about this at the start. The OGL. It was a. It was. It it, it had the entire uh, nerd uh, world up in uproar. Um, you yourself, you wrote a, an open letter. It got a lot of traction. There was a lot of kickback about this thing. And we went into great detail, or yourself, you went into very good detail about the entire thing, what it meant for, for us, uh, what it meant for D&D players. Um, and now, like you said, they have completely retreated from um what they said they were going to do so can you explain to us what they have done and why you think they've done this the the why is extremely complicated and i and i don't know that anyone knows for sure um uh i (laughs) i keep talking to a writer from bloomberg who keeps asking me like why do you think they're doing this it doesn't like both the original move and the full retraction are both really confounding Mm. Um, so, so, um, essentially previously wizards of the coast was trying to, uh, take D and D as we know it 
and lock it up in a way where if you're going to make content for D&D, Wizards of the Coast was going to extract your intellectual property, uh, a lot of your funds, if you're big enough to actually make a living out of it, um, and and basically, basically kind of uh, strip virtual tabletops and other gaming aids out of the space completely um, to monopolize all of that space. And there were, there were pretty catastrophic, um, you know, uh, consequences for that if it actually went through. And I think a lot of people understood it in a way that was really heartening because um, these are sort of technical licensing things. Um, after, you know, basically a month of constant backlash from the community and very little communication on Wizards of the Coast part. Um, from what we heard through the grapevine, people were fired, people were hired, Paramount was called, Paramount got angry. <laughs> um, like, you know, yeah. understandably, um, Wizards of the Coast not only doubled back and like changed their communication style around this, um, putting Chris Cox kind of as like the spokesperson where before they just didn't really have an individual spokesperson. Um, they, they've sort of doubled back and um, taken the content of D&D 5e that lets you make stuff for the game, like I do, like I've been doing for years, um, and put that in um, Creative Commons. So it's essentially public domain. Anyone can make stuff for D&D 5e um, in perpetuity without Wizards of the Coast being able to revoke that in any way that is meaningful. Um, they, of course, still own their branding. You can't call it Dungeons and Dragons. That's sort of expected because of U.S. copyright law. There's there's no way that would like change in a meaningful way. Um, but this is a massive win. Um, I can continue to make stuff that builds on and expands on D&D 5th edition as long as there is an audience there, um, which potentially speaks to Wizards of the Coast's, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, thinking that the next edition is going to be such a strong and a uh, successful addition that it draws everyone away from 5e and this sort of move was kind of unnecessary. It's just a legacy move. Um, I, I think that it's, we're gonna end up in a very uh, complex location around that very soon, depending on how good sixth edition is and whether or not people go to it and what Wizards of the Coast tries to do to creators who are you know, uh, uh, building stuff for that game. Do you think there's gonna be a sixth edition some anytime? Oh yeah. Yes. Yes, I well, okay. Through the grapevine, they're calling it D and D one because they want to say it's completely backwards compatible. It's the same game. We've just changed some things here and there, and we've changed all of the classes and all of the base rules. And whoops, it's a different edition. Um, I've heard through the grapevine that um, they have legitimate legal reasons that they need to make it a new edition. That it has to do with their acquisition of D and D Beyond, uh, and that like that's the reason it has to be a new edition. It was a way for because. D&D Beyond only had a license for fifth edition. Mm. So by by sort of creating a new edition, they were able to bring fandom, the people who made and owned D&D Beyond until recently, to the table to sell it. Otherwise, I mean, they, they had a good thing going. There was no reason for the parent company of D&D Beyond to sell it to Wizards of the Coast. It, I mean, that 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 is the story I've heard from an insider. Uh, it, it tracks with everything we've heard. It tracks with the design decisions they're making with 6E that a lot of the choices around like spell lists are kind of obtuse and really only work if you have a digital guide that can sort your spells out in an algorithmic way. That sort of stuff, you know. Yeah, I've heard that apparently there's also going to be like a subscription model for D&D one beyond whatever it's going to be called now. And that kind of just lock people into that uh, infrastructure. 
they they want to have a subscription model that looks a little more like Netflix as opposed to a you know traditional model that looks like buying DVDs, you know, yeah. um, which makes sense even if they piss off fifty percent of their audience if they can squeeze everybody else for three hundred percent or five hundred percent more revenue. Um, that is a win. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's not a win. It's a massive loss for consumers everywhere. Um, but you know, from a strictly profit centric, and I think since the OGL thing has popped off, we have a much greater insight into what is going on at Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro. Hasbro doesn't want to lose Wizards of the Coast as a, um, you know, subsidiary stock, like, Wizards of the Coast is a very large company owned by Hasbro. In fact, by some estimates, it makes 60 to 70% of all of Hasbro's money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people in the in the finance stock game would really love to see Wizards of the Coast be its own stock, separate from Hasbro, which would, uh, um, you know, allow it to kind of flourish without Hasbro's oversight, um, which means Hasbro is trying very hard to show that it is contributing value to Wizards of the Coast. So, So there's this complex stock money based reasoning behind why we still expect shenanigans from sixth edition. We still expect um, um, D and D beyond to get more and more money grubby as time goes on. Um, and that, you know, uh, um, the D and D movie is, is hopefully going to like, they, it seems like they're really hoping that it bolsters their um, levels of support yeah. going into these sorts of decisions. And I mean, like was the coast decision to, lock the 5e rules into creative commons it's a massive sort of rather than just retracting the initial statement they've gone back even further yes and that's are they they, are they they just are they just doing it kind of like you know it's a case of fine it's a you know it's a lost battle you have it and then we'll move on with something else and i I think i think they're trying to regain some trust um because i it is it is really incalculable how much suspicion everything they do like they've they've gained all the suspicion is around everything they do at all times now because a lot of the audience has learned that Wizard of the Coast is not to be trusted. I mean that that move was yeah. was so craven and so directed. Um, I think they're trying really hard to regain that audience because they're about to make the ask them for a big value proposition. Go see our movie, um, you know, review it well. And then spend, you know, uh, $180 on three new core books for a system that is similar to the system that you already have and and also get a subscription to this service that's going to cost you $200 a year or more, you know, um, which would be a pretty middle-ish ballpark of what we expect yeah. for like a monthly price. And that's to say nothing about, oh, and convince all of your friends to do the same um, because, you know, uh, uh, it's... I don't know if it's likely that D&D Beyond is just going to charge one person in order to use these rules. It might just be charging for each player, which is a massive change in the way that economics of, of so role-playing games. How does that work for other um, virtual tabletops if you have to go through D&D Beyond? This was the main question that we were left with at the end of, like, now we know 5th edition isn't going anywhere. Um, so the question is whether or not sixth edition is going to be as locked down. Um, the most popular, uh, virtual tabletops right now have nothing to do with D and D like D and D doesn't have a virtual tabletop, but, um, you know, again, rumor mill, I know people who, who do and have worked at, at, um, D and D beyond the rumor mill suggests that they've had a virtual tabletop ready for three to four years. Um, but they weren't allowed to deploy it. 
for various reasons. Um, the the relationship between Wizards of the Coast and D and D Beyond before the acquisition was pretty adversarial. It was pretty detached, which feels kind of strange considering D and D Beyond had D and D's name on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that was not a good work environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the sort of like being shackled to a company that that has to approve all your decisions was not a very uh, good thing for a lot of people who work there, which is why a lot of the higher ups have left. Um, so so. Uh, it's really hard to see what is going to happen with virtual tabletops. I think that's where Wizards of the Coast expects to make a lot of their money going forward, which potentially means they think that's the avenue by which they can put people like me out of business. Um, I don't necessarily think that's uh, the wisest or or um, uh, most forward-thinking thing to try to do. Um, I mean, Wizards of the Coast is never going to make a book like The Book of Extinction, which is mm-hmm. educational and about conservation. And about history, um, they're not going to be partnering with conservation organizations to do that. So uh, third-party creators bring a lot to this space that Wizards of the Coast could not even try to equal. You know, um, so it's. Um, I see. Yeah, I, it, I I think it, it's like it, it's like um, it's like there's a uh, for Warhammer 40k. There's a thing called mm-hmm. Battlescribe, which is an army builder. And it's free, and everybody uses it, and has done for years. And um, Gears Workshop uh, turned around and went, "Oh, we've got this Warhammer Plus. It's kind of subscription thing, so you get a few more." So that's right. They got all the the films from YouTube and stuff like that, and they put them in this thing, and all the videos, and went, "Oh, there's Warhammer Plus, and you get this army builder and stuff." And people just kind of went, "Yeah, we're we're not really that bothered," and just sort of kind of stuck with the free version. Um, which they had to change some names and stuff like that to make it sort of, you know, so they could still use it. Right. But I, you know, I, it hasn't done, I don't think, you know, the Warhammer Plus as it is, is really that popular. And I think it would be the same sort of thing here because. I, I think so as well, yeah, but yeah. but it doesn't mean they can't find ways to squeeze. We yeah. live, we live in a really unprecedented era of massive companies that have defined the landscape both technologically and culturally for the last few decades, beginning to consume themselves in an effort to stay financially solvent and relevant in an era where their speculative value is no longer keeping them afloat. This is true of Twitter. uh, This is true of Facebook. And uh, it's certainly, I think, becoming true of the major gaming companies, um, you know, uh, Games Workshop and Wizards of the Coast, who are looking at potentially rough financial times ahead and trying to find ways to maximize value going into that time. Um, so I, I think I think we're going to see a lot of reducing features, increasing costs, and uh, people just kind of choosing not to engage with it. Um, as always, a good product brings consumers, and I don't think they're interested in making better products. They're interested in trying to find ways to capitalize quick because they know things may turn bad at any given year in the next three to four years. Because, I mean, they seem to be taking lessons from almost the software industry where, like, you've gone from, like, you're a single one-off payment for some software that would last you X number of years until it's redundant to a subscription model where you have to keep paying each year on and on for, you know, smaller payment than the initial outlay, but it soon racks up over time. Season in, in, investors, investors are aware that that is a good stream of revenue. Yeah. Um, so it's an easy explanation and an easy hook for those investors. 
Um, so there, it's it's driven by normal profit-seeking motives. Nothing here is actually that surprising. Yeah. Um, you know, if you if you know a lot about stocks and have a lot about how companies tend to operate. Um, so it it's um, it, it's yet to be seen how this is going to play out in the long term. But for the moment, we've won a big victory. Um, I, I think we still have a lot to be concerned about going forward. I think we have a lot to worry about. But right now, I think we're in a good spot. Well, this sort of kind of ties in with what you said, um, that they there's a lot of suspicion about them now. Like, I, if you were, say, Wizards of the Coast in May, even last year, you know, I, I, I wouldn't put them up there with the, the big sort of Machiavellian, dastardly sort of uh, companies. Um, the, you know, they were just the guys who did Dungeons and Dragons and that, you know, that sort of Dungeons and Dragons is great and there's not a lot of sort of... And now, because of that, there is literally every motive, everything they do, there seems to be motive. It's like, why are they doing that? There's questions. There's sort of like, is there anything underhanded going on here? Is it all about the money? Whereas that that... Those questions were definitely not in my mind. Even exactly, three I didn't know ago. anything about. I wor- I've worked, you know, writing D and D stuff for years. I knew nothing about how Hasbro's relationship to the the, the you know the stockholders, you know, influenced Wizards of the Coast decision making until now. And I think that I'm not the only person who has kind of internalized a huge amount of that knowledge uh, in a way that is, you know, it just creates more skepticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that like what also the parent is that. Um, media organizations like Bloomberg are starting going, so what's exactly D&D and what's going on? Which I find is absolutely fascinating from like 10 years ago, even five years ago, you wouldn't be having this conversation, but it's now. It's big business now. It's it is big exactly. business. Um, and, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody, you know, making stuff for D&D also makes Hasbro money. Um, but it, it does mean that we are we are adjacent to that larger space. And um, the fact that people are able to make successful third-party books and third-party accessories that, uh, you know, uh, have Kickstarters that raise multiple millions of dollars is significant in and of itself. There's not a lot of other industries that can say that independent voices are making millions of dollars on Kickstarter uh, within their space, you know, uh, without paying major royalties. I think they're going yeah. to be really careful with themselves yeah. going forward because I think, As, you know, especially because the D and D brand right now, especially look given the film, is very profitable. Which you can see if like any miscommunications from Hasbro or Wizard of the Coast could soon change their fortunes, so to speak. Well, I think they've got to learn a lot from uh, from the video game industry. Um, you know, microtransactions and things like that have have gone and bitten a lot of a lot of sort of uh, AAA companies in the ass, and um, they've got to be very careful what they do because they could do one, they they could push it too far, and people would just go, yeah, fuck you guys, you know, we're just not interested, and you know that'll be it. Just... And, and you're 100 percent right. And there's this different value proposition for Dungeons and Dragons uh, that I don't think that Wizards of the Coast fully understands that like. It's a game that asks you to put a ton of work into it and like reap those rewards, uh, um, you know, in return. Um, that's why it's it's always been so much cheaper than video games and you know comparable sorts of war games like Warhammer 40k. It's because one person buys the books and then everyone puts in a ton of effort to create this thing spontaneously. Um, there are cheaper ways to accomplish what a role playing game does. You know, if if you're trying to you know 
set, it's always like people get into D&D when they're in college and high school because they have no spending money. Only one person had to get the books. If they're changing that into a subscription service, I think they're going to realize that it sort of takes the legs out from them and no amount of like whales coming in because they got really excited about the D&D movie and want to role play Chris Pine. Uh, you know, those people aren't necessarily going to offset a very frustrated horde of people who are used to a business model and a type of product uh, that they've enjoyed for decades. Yeah, great. Yeah, and like, this is like a hobby that, as you say, has a relatively low cost of entry. Only one person needs to buy the books, or you could split the, the cost between your friends, and that's it. You only then is a pencil, paper, and your imagination. Yeah, like, and I, free time. I, yeah, like, I, Tons I, I, of free time. Like, I try to be sort of rational when it comes to big companies and stuff like people moan about games workshop a lot and people won't moan about big companies it's in the end they are companies they need to make money if they don't make money then they can't provide you with the stuff that you love so there has to be a happy sort of kind of medium there has to be a good middle ground in there they do need to make profit they need to have enough profit to keep their investors sort of happy blah 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 but they don't want to be too greedy about it because then that gets to a point where you're just like well i'm not interested so there has to be a good sort of happy medium with them if they push it too far then people will just go yeah fuck you guys i i'm i'm done and one of the things D always had like you've all meant you've both mentioned is it's it was it's not it's the, it wasn't cheap for me because I went out and bought I bought all the books and you know I've got the I've got all the different ex, uh, ancillary things you know all the map makers and all the other things that sort of kind of go in and stuff so there's lots of things that you you spend a lot of money on, uh but you know for the grand scheme of things you know people yeah. don't sort yeah. of need yeah. all those things. at its core all it needs is three books, player's handbook, uh, dungeon uh, dungeon master's guide and muster manual, it, that's it. Yeah, and you, the, you know. the game requires so much personal input. If you yeah. want additional options, you can create them. Yeah. Like yeah. it's it's not like a video game where there's software and there's hardware. It's literally software. Like the book, the ga- the game's rules are software that run on people. Yeah. So you have to take that. Like, well, it 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 requires so much human effort to conjure these worlds and create. You know, the kind of niche cases that the the rules don't address. That you know it has to be at a lower cost because people are putting time in, you know, any hobby that requires a ton of your time will have to cost, you know, a, a more reasonable amount. Um, so I don't know. Uh, that's, I think that's, that's where potentially we're going to see wizards of the coast fumble in the meantime. Uh, and if they do fumble, we have fifth edition. I get to continue making stuff here. The audience isn't going anywhere. Um, I think they're going to continue to continue to buy books for fifth edition. Wizards of the coast could even double back and say, we're going to keep making stuff for that. Um, maybe they, we, maybe they will. Fumbled. Maybe they'll try. They'll take the punt at the. They'll do that sort of kind of soft launch with uh, sixth edition or you know D and D one and and kind of go oh this the subscription thing you know there's all these cool things see how it goes and if if you know if they don't push it too much and then they go okay right that's not working out we'll slide back to uh, good old fifth edition and sort of kind of carry on with that. And that sort of I yeah. think would be a safer way to do it for them instead of going balls deep and sort of going all in for this one and then it just crashing and burning and then kind of going everybody thinking they're just money grabbing bastards and there, there's tons of good guy ways they can approach it yeah and, exactly um, so i don't think it's i don't think it's worth saying well they're definitely going to stab us in the back but it is it is worth mentioning that everyone in the audience now knows they're capable of it and they might do it again. exactly <laughs> and that's it so, and they, 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 yeah. that's the one that's their biggest issue they, they have put that doubt 
in a lot of very trusting people's minds. Like I said, three months ago, I had no zero doubts about them whatsoever. Now it's like you question everything they're doing because you're just like, well, they've done it before. They might do it again. And even if you have sort of come back with all these nice things and you've tried to make good for them, everybody still does not fully trust you. And so you've got to make a lot of work to get the gain that trust back. I don't think you'll ever fully retain it. I don't think you'll you'll fully get it back. It's There's always going to be that thing in the back of people's minds where you're just like, yeah, are they doing this for ulterior motives? I, I think everything they do is just getting is under so much scrutiny right now. Um, they did a create they they announced a creator summit in which they only invited um, you know basically media personalities, a few people who were also creating other stuff, but they didn't invite me. They didn't invite the other people who publish hardcover books on the regular, um, you know. And they called it a creator summit, and that that got the internet in just a fervor because they didn't wait long enough to mm. wait for it to really simmer down. They can't. They need to talk up their movie. So uh, I think they're just, you know, they're walking through a field of rakes and every time they take a wrong step, it's going to smack them in the face and there's nothing they can do to stop that. That's a good analogy. I like that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they just kind of need to watch themselves for a significant amount of time almost and just kind of play it nice and not try to do anything too money grabby. Um. Yeah. On that note, uh, should we should we transition <laughs> yeah, to talk about absolutely. like a weirdly charitable thing? I'm. It, I, I don't want to say this is fully charitable because Kickstarter doesn't let me donate money straight to charities, you know, via yeah. the campaign. But uh, we're promoting conservation, and we've made a book uh, that uh, in partnership with a charitable organization. Oh, um, yeah. Cool. So we, we briefly uh, talked about this before, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, explain. Carry on. So the Book of Extinction is um, mostly a bestiary of extinct animals. And uh, we tell you the exact story in about a page, page and a half of what that animal was and what happened to them. And then we give you a stat block to use it like a beast. So a druid can summon it, uh, a wizard can use it as a familiar regular stat block. So if that is a bear, we're basically giving you a bear stat block. Maybe change a little bit based on how this animal is slightly different from a brown bear or something like that. And then we reimagine that animal based on uh, the cultural significance that it had, or the legacy it left behind. Some of these, some of these animals were very, very culturally significant to entire continents, entire peoples, uh, and those legacies still kind of echo around. And then in other cases, they became famous after their demise. The dodo is a really good example of this. Yeah. So you know, when we adapt the dodo, it becomes a Lewis Carroll-inspired. A uh, Feywild wild creature that can confuse and baffle people by saying ridiculous words and doing ridiculous things. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting book. We also threw in um, dead races, uh, which are um, you get to play an endling, which uh, it's a grim term if you're not aware of it. An endling is the very last of its kind. Oh yeah, you talked about so, this in the last. You talked about this in the last podcast because it's a really. If he didn't hear this, so ex- explain about them. So an endling is the very last of its kind. So a good example of this is if you talk about the white rhino right now, um, it is not extinct, but there's only two left, and they're both female. So the white rhino is going extinct. So in the present, we can talk about Najin and Fatu, uh, the last two white rhinos. They're endlings. They're the very last of their kind. And even if we engineered some mad science to create a breeding experiment or a cloning thing, they're they're so small 
Like the numbers are so small. I mean, we're down to two that are confirmed in the entire world, always, and they're, they're the most well-protected animals in the entire world. Men with machine guns, watch them at all times. Um, even if we manage to like get a breeding experiment going, it doesn't matter. We're too far gone. I mean, you could get five, 10 of them and the numbers are too small to survive. Uh, and you know, you can't really breed them to high enough numbers in captivity. Their lifespans are too long creatures, you know, big animals don't live well in captivity. So, you know, this is a, this is an intractable problem. Those are endlings. Now they net, they're going to go extinct. So, um, in order to help kind of embody this idea and, and help you role play out some extinction, you can choose a race and we put five in the book. Uh, and then we have, uh, of endlings, it's a new race, but you're the last one. Um, so we have statue people called the Cory, uh, who are, you know, hiding amongst classical antiquity statues uh, because nice. they've been hunted to near extinction by gargoyles, their hated rivals. Uh, we have the lob, which is a fuzzy kind of um, house spirit. Uh, it's actually one of the few kind of like house spirits that hasn't been adapted into D&D already. Uh, the lob, is, uh, you know, we envision as this big kind of furry, almost like walking bear with a reptile tail uh, that, that is just kind of a gentle little house spirit and was exiled from the Feywild and ever since has been trying to survive on the material plane where everyone thinks it's a lycanthrope or a demon or something else that should be slain. Um, so, you know, they, they just try to be friendly and make friends with people and, and that's not going so well. So they're endlings now. Um, and then I, you know, we have, we have more on that list, which we can go into in detail. You've got, you got the PLUC, I'm looking at your Kickstarter. You've got the PLUC, oh, perfect. the PLUC sapien. Um, I'm so the, thrilled about the paleo sapiens. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're raptor people uh, with feathers and fabric. They're, they're people that existed before humanoids dominated the material plane. So they're, they're dinosaur-like. Um, and D&D has like a weird relationship with dinosaurs, but I wanted to make a people that were um, like really vibrant and really present. And, it, you know, they weren't like banging rocks together. They had fabric, they had tools, um, you know, they had culture and they had gods and all of that is just kind of quietly gone, you know, away as their numbers have dwindled along with the dinosaurs in a fantasy game. Um, you know, if you present dinosaurs in your game, they're probably not abundant. They're probably isolated in small pockets of the world, like deep in underground or on plateaus somewhere on isolated continents. So we're kind of presenting this as a type of humanoids that lived alongside those dinosaurs and have gone, you know, very quickly extinct. Uh, and the artist did a wonderful job bringing those to life. Um, and the last one is our primordial elves. Mm. If you know anything about D&D lore, um, there's like a bunch of elven subraces. And they're yeah. all supposed to come from like a single type of elf that was created by the gods. And then, you know, depending on which fantasy setting you're in, there's something that caused them to split. So we liked the idea that there are some elves that were not split into subraces. And uh, we aesthetically imagined them as sort of an Afrofuturist, you know, um, aesthetic. And they look very, very cool. And, you know, so it's an elf with some divine characteristics, a little bit of divine spellcasting. Um, and, you know, uh, it's just super, super neat to kind of capture that aesthetic uh, as an elf, uh, which is something that not a lot of people kind of, uh, you know, approach. And I, I was so thrilled to, to tackle that. Yeah. So as an as an endling, what quality does that give um, the character background? Mechanically? Yeah. Uh, well, you have to choose. Well, so in a mechanical sense, it doesn't change much. Right. We made them a hair stronger than a regular race, but not by much. Um, you know, races shouldn't define the way that you play your class does. So that, yeah. that design kind of constraint hasn't really left. Um, the big thing is that you have to decide. Oh, uh, the one big thing is that if you die, you go extinct. And 
you know, just as if I said, we were talking about the white rhino, if somebody managed to cobble together some mad science and get a few more white rhinos into the world, that doesn't mean they're not going extinct. There are forces that drive things extinct, right? If there's no place for them to live safely and reproduce in good numbers, if there's no prey, if there's no habitat, you go extinct anyway. It doesn't matter how many of them you there are. That, that's how this works. Um, so, so the idea that we're using to reinforce that concept um, is that uh, if you die and you're, you are the last one, uh, you are severed from resurrection. Magic Ooh. can't bring you back. You're gone forever. Oh, that is because a... I think it emphasizes the finality of extinction, and it's something that we need to internalize. Yeah, that's a very um, powerful thing to have because obviously it's, it's scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it is, and it's technically a massive debuff in a in a mechanical sense. But the idea is that you chose to be this, you chose to embody this, and I think it's important that you get you know uh, a fair chance to see the consequences of that. Um, because I mean this book is about the sorts of consequences yeah absolutely and like also just like playing ending in a game where you can be resurrected almost you know negates that i should say so yeah, kind but, of removing that from the character suddenly it exposes them and kind of reinforces the nature of them well let's see that's sort of the, that sort of ties in because recently um like we've had uh, some uh, turmoil in our D campaign uh, Pete's Pete's character uh, was killed. Uh, he had to leave, so his his character was killed off. And as soon as he was sort of dying and you know dying, people were running up to him. I cast resurrect, and I I, I do this, and it's trying to bring him back. And we had to, he had to go look. I, I'm I'm too tired. I don't want I don't want to carry on. He had to do that spiel to sort of kind of, of course, get the whole of thing course. of like I don't want it. I can't carry on. So don't, I, I, don't, don't do that. Don't bring me back. I'm dead. But then we did another thing where there was like the funeral for him, and, and all the shit happened, and um. I made it hard for them because I didn't want them sort of attacking the big guy. I wanted them to sort of kind of, you know, maybe have a bit of a spar with them and then let him go. So, um, you know, but they didn't. They carried on and a load of people got killed. And then afterwards, and I was just like, I made it very hard for them. And a load of people got killed, including a lot of the NPCs, which they had as like tag alongs. But then afterwards, it's just like, um, and I'm going to cast resurrect on this person i'm going to do this and it sort of took the edge off it slightly because it's just like there was no real consequence to that then because a lot of them you know are being brought back now i i i made it so like they couldn't resurrect everybody and stuff but it was just like yeah. you know you know it does having that that mechanic was like if you die because you're an endling that's it. That's it. You're you, you've not only you're not only dead, but your entire species slash race does not exist anymore. And that's really powerful. That's really powerful. It's it's yeah. And and you know we also have a the chapter opens with a case study saying, by the way, you don't have to play one of these fantasy races. Like, um, you know, this is a really neat way to introduce a new race where you don't have to explain why other your fantasy setting hasn't addressed these people that are statues before. Well, they're so few that you didn't know they existed or you thought they were a legend or something like that. Um, so that's a clean way to introduce it, but you can just use humans. What if you play in a fantasy setting in which humans are basically gone? You're the last one. So you can play a human fighter or a boring human wizard, like nothing too crazy and kind of still access that tension and that tragedy to explore what it is like to be the last man on earth in which there, I mean, there's still elves and dwarves and dragonborn, but 
humans are gone, which is a nice inversion of normal fantasy settings in which humans are so everywhere, it's weird to see anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's been the kind of play reaction when you've been playtesting the endlings? What's been the play reaction to I haven't gotten to playtest the endlings yet. I'm really, really excited about them, um, but I haven't gotten them to the table yet. Um, And uh, I actually, a a good chunk of the monsters in this book, I haven't gotten to play test. About, About half of them I have. Um, and they're, they're really, really, they're really, really interesting, but I don't want to push any players into, into rolling one of these up. I want to see how they feel about, uh, kind of biting that off. Uh, yeah. that, it has to be a very personal choice because it's suddenly a much more, uh, emotive character than, you know, you would play by default. Yeah. Because, because you're much more vulnerable. I mean, you have no resurrection. There's no comeback. And what do you, how do you play that? Do you play it as like, I am the last one of my kind, I'm going to show off what made us so special and amazing, or are you going to be very careful because when you die, that's it. And you need to see if there's any possible hope, if there's any possible chance, you need to protect yourself to see that. Um, Like what, how do you engage with it? I don't think there's a right answer. I think Hmm. it's, I think it's too tragic of a question. That's such a good thing. It's having like I, I'm, I'm just thinking about it and having something like that. That would be like if if I was to play a character and then link, I, it would be like you know, a, an ultimate sacrifice. That would be an, yeah. an epic way, an epic way to sort of end. You know, like you know, like you know, if if Draken, you know, Pete's character just hit me in an endless, like I'm doing this. I know it's going to be the end of my race. It's going to be the end of everything, but I'm doing it for the greater good for my yeah. for the people here to, go, that, to go out with a bang, not not a whimper. Yeah, and that, I just think that would be so epic, so epic. It, it's 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 filled with so many storytelling possibilities, and yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. when the moment this was this was uh, you know suggested and you know in a writing session we went. It has to be that. Oh, so, you know? so this, how did this come about exactly? Because you mentioned it was suggested in a writing session. Um, I have I have one co-writer with me on this. He's he's the lead on this project, um, uh, Lucas Zellers, um, who uh, uh, is is a really brilliant writer who came to me with this idea um, years ago and said, "Hey, Mike, I want to start a Kickstarter, uh, you know, to fund this project. Uh, how what's the best way to go about that?" And I was like, "There is no good way to go about writing a monster book for your first book. They're very expensive on a page by page basis compared to regular books. Every single monster I put in the book, every two pages or so, I have to get a piece of art, you know, bespoke piece of art of this, especially of, and it has to look like those animals. For a lot of the animals in this book, uh, there are no modern artistic impressions of them at all. So we have to be very, very true to what these animals looked like." And how you know we think they they would have you know acted. So so it's it's not an easy artistic challenge. It's certainly not an easy financial challenge. And I think if you're doing it right, you need to have resources. So I told him the correct way to do this is to bring me on board. I want to do this project. I think it gives us a chance to do something good, like objectively good. I've I've made really cool expansions to 5e. We expanded into sci-fi. We expanded the book with 10 new base classes or the game, 10 new base classes. Uh, But this gave us a chance to, to change the way that people tell their stories a little bit. Like if you're playing a game in which you kill an owlbear, you've never really asked the question if that's the last owlbear or how many owlbears are left. I was just reading that on your Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah. So we're doing a little adventure called The Last Owlbear in which in a near future, the owlbears have been hunted to basically extinction. And you find the, you hear tell of the last one 
and you have to go capture it, protect it, and then fend off hunters that would love to put it on their wall um, as you try to bring it somewhere for sort of a last-ditch breeding program. And um, I'm going to tell you, we haven't finished writing that adventure. We haven't decided how to address whether or not that is ultimately successful because the book is simultaneously about like the tragedy of extinction, like the tragedy of, of how all of this happens and taking a look at history in a way that you haven't really been taught. Like the idea that all these animals that were like really big and important were just around in the past and now they're not, is not something you're really taught in school. Um, but simultaneously, it's a book about hope. It's a book about conservation. It's a book about how we change things for the better and what we can do to, to push back against these trends. Um, and, you know, working with, I mean, one of the most prominent conservation organizations of our time uh, has been a real uh, uh, boon for that. We always, you know, have somebody to ask about like, okay, how do we, like, what is the, the silver lining on this one? How do we... <laughs> Like these stories get a little grim, um, but we found, I think, at every turn, ways to make them hopeful and inspiring and useful for the reader. Yeah, I mean, it would be best described. This is not just a monster manual. This is like almost a, you know, a player's guide, a GM guide, as much as a. It is. It manual. is. It has. It has players' options. This comes from my my you know history of making a lot of players' options. We have twelve subclasses, um, one for each class, um, that you know draw from nature and have this sort of, you know, really interesting edge to them. Um, we have, uh, you know, uh, five races. We're potentially going to add two more stretch goals. Lots of people have asked me about it. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then it's a lot of, it's a lot of, um, uh, prompts for the DM to know how to implement these monsters in a game. So, uh, plot hooks. And also, uh, there's an entire chapter about, uh, monster extinctions, like how, so not just the owlbear, but we, we break down in the same way that the IUCN, uh, who creates the, the red lists that classifies animals as extinct or, or endangered, um, it uh, uh, breaks down monsters in, uh, in the same way, talking about their threats, how they're utilized, and conservation actions you can take to prevent these monsters from going extinct, which is really just sort of a world-building exercise that you can tap into to make your games that much more uh, realistic and engaging so that you can kind of take some of this thought about conservation and act it out in a, in a realistic way what was the reaction to the conservation um program when you approached them with this idea i think that well so we, we actually reached out to a whole bunch of different organizations and about half of them went we have no idea what that means uh, and this is one where i mean there is a an overlap in academia and biology majors and dnd &D folks um in fact the whole project's success hinges on that being a good overlap you know um and we found, you know, the, the Center for Biological Diversity, they were like, yeah, our, our staff is thrilled. Like, we love D&D. Like, we're working for this, this awesome nonprofit. Obviously, we want to we want to support you in any way that we any way that we can. And they've they've given us a, a science consultant, um, someone who's who's falling down these research rabbit holes with us and lending a huge amount of expertise um, to to help make sure that these topics are presented in the right way. Uh, that we're not, you know, uh, fumbling anything really badly, that that our ideas are presented really clearly. And uh, it has been um, just a fantastic experience. It's it's like having an editor who can tell you whether or not things are scientifically sound. 
Okay, and also you mentioned that you also kind of draw on the cultural background of, of each extinct animal as well. Yeah. Like, again, how did you kind of go about research? Like, given like there's so much cultural diversity, I mean, how, part, of it, research... part of it is um, just which ones we choose. Um, yeah. So there's a there's so many so many extinct animals to choose from. You have to start creating criteria and because we know that we're going to reimagine these extinct animals and we're also only limiting ourselves to animals that have gone extinct while humans have been around yeah. so we have an entire separate chapter for things that were big and cool and awesome before we came around and died off before we came around right um that's an entire chapter but for the ones that get like the spotlight the ones that get you know these reimaginings like the dodo and like uh you know the thylacine the ghost tiger of tasmania um, you know, we wanted to make sure that they had some real cultural impact. So, you know, if I'm looking at the table of contents of my like current build of the book, that's like 150 pages long. Um, we want to get up to over 200, but for now we're Ooh. currently at 150. Um, the first, the first thing in the bestiary section is the Atlas bear and the Atlas lion. So those were a lion and a bear from the Atlas mountains. And if uh, you know about lions in the Coliseum, they were taken from the Atlas mountains uh, in, yes. northern, uh, in Northern Africa. Um, by the tens of thousands, huge numbers of them were captured and taken to the Coliseum to be slaughtered by the bestiari, the, the gladiators who killed beasts. Um, they were a specific type of gladiator who, who were the beast killers, um, which were different from the, you know, the ones who were fed to beasts. And, you know, they, the Romans had names for these things. Um, so, you know, those have this immediate cultural connotation. You know lions and Colosseum, but you've probably never connected that those lions, that specific species, they're gone. They were all wiped out. And, and you know, a combination of climate change and overutilization uh, got rid of them. So, you know, we imagined them as pit beasts. They're these, uh, you know, they're imbued with the spirits of those who have died in the Colosseum and they have this, Ooh. you know, gladiator instinct and intelligence and cunning and the ability to use maneuvers as if they were gladiators themselves oh. Um, oh, for nice. both the Atlas bear and the Atlas lion. And then we present a template so you can turn any animal into a pit beast. Um, so, you know, that's just one example of some plate, like that's literally just the first row on the list, right, of uh, animals that have a lot more cultural impact than you would think and uh, reimagining them based on that cultural impact. Have you kind of considered like the, the impact of um, on the world and the characters of a, of a species going extinct? Like, so is there any kind of mechanical or game elements for a species going extinct during the game sessions or during the campaign? You know, um, we addressed that during the... Um, the monster extinctions chapter, but we haven't solidified them into pure mechanical mm. elements. There's these, um, uh, I can't remember exactly what the scientific term for them. They're, they're chain extinctions that when one thing goes extinct, another thing follows quickly because it's part of like an ecological collapse cycle. Right. So a good example, you know, in the monsters chapter is that we talk about how if dragons go extinct, the very next thing to go extinct are cobalts, right? Mm. Because cobalts rely on dragons as part of their ecological niche. Like, we are only alive because there's a big scary thing behind us keeping us from getting hunted by everything because we're the weakest monsters around. Um, so without dragons, kobolds would have to live with aboleths or maybe liches and they're, they're not going to survive, right? Like they've lost their major, major ecological like temple. So we do, we do address these sorts of things because they happen in the real world. Um, every single one of these like cool story hooks around like what happens when an animal goes extinct or when a monster goes extinct is just taken from examples that we've, we've read about and that we've talked yeah. about in the book. I, just, I, wonder, 
I was wondering about like social interaction as well. Like, you know, um, for example, if the characters or a character becomes recognised as having killed the last last of the species, some might kind of regard it with awe, like, "Oh, you hunted down the last yeah. one." Others, like such you know, a druid or a cleric of a certain uh, pantheon, might go, "You did what?" So I don't. Helped. I mean, it would be. It, it's. I feel like there needs to be some sort of curse around this. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. 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 Can, um, I want to. I want to bring up a real world example. Did I tell you guys about the Great Auk last time? No. No. Uh, the Great Auk. The Great Auk is this seabird. For for those of who who weren't here last time, the Great Auk was this seabird. Um, it was really really swift in the water. They looked like a very tall penguin with this like really unique beak shape. Um, they were in. Uh, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm showing it on my on the Kickstarter. I'm showing the screen yeah. grab of your Kickstarter at the moment. So you've got, oh, fantastic! So Thank you've got you. the uh, you've got the the one on the left, and you've got the sort of kind of ice blasting out of the... yeah. So we reimagined it as this ocean master because they were in this ice uh, icy area around um, uh, Iceland. Um, they they you know were in these huge numbers until Europeans realized that their their feathers made great pillows. Uh, and then their numbers fell rather quickly, as anything in, you know, uh, uh, industrial overutilization will do. Um, the last colony of them was on this island called um, uh, Gearful, Gearful Galaskar. Garfowl Rock is, is how that would translate. Uh, and uh, in 1830, a volcano, a volcano blew it up. And the very last ones... Uh, the very last like family of them that escaped the volcano eruption went to a different island, uh, uh, LD Island, uh, which was a lot easier for Europeans to access. Um, and three people whose names are recorded in history showed up on that island. It was John Bradson, uh, uh, Sigfor, uh, Ithelson and Kettle Kettleson. Icelandic <laughs> names. I'm doing my best. Uh, they showed up on the island and killed the last three. Um, John and Sidger strangled the adults, and Kettle Kettleson crushed the eggs beneath his foot, beneath his boot. And there is a quote: like they wrote down exactly what they did and how they did it. Um, I caught it close to the edge, a precipice many fathoms deep. I took him by the neck, and he flapped his wings. He made no cry. I strangled him because they were being sent to collect specimens of the very last one um and that to me seems like it is a crime that doesn't have a name yeah and in a dnd sense it should be a curse yeah, like yeah, yeah. it should be that, that is that is a thing that is so dramatically cruel being the single thing to exterminate a species um is th- there isn't a word for that there isn't a consequence for that i, I keep running into examples in this book of things that are terrible enough that we don't have words for them. I mean, in a, in a um, realm where there's like no, a pantheon of gods, it's surely there must be one of, like, of the a god of nature. So surely the god of nature and um, turn around and go, and, I don't like you. <laughs> yes, yeah, one yeah, of, a, yes a, exactly. A, de- a debuff I, of some sort? I don't know. Have yeah, to I be. mean, it would be, there would be druids hunting you down for the rest of your life, one yeah. would expect. One oh. of the... One of the um, uh, uh, things we have in the book is a god of the Paleo Sapiens who has gone mad and, uh, you know, is just kind of wandering around. Um, that reminds me, it's, it's, it reminds me of in the Bulgariad books by David Eddings, 
where there was a god that had gone mad because she'd lo- she'd lost all her followers this of this race and in the yeah, process of the they, book yeah in the post in the post of the book they found one of one of the last remaining people of her kind and managed to kind of rejuvenate her yeah i mean that's that's the idea if there's only one left you could use this character and um yeah. we based it on the carolina parakeet um which um when the last one died, uh, they froze the specimen and sent it by mail to the Smithsonian. It got lost in the mail. Um, so we made this god, this like resplendent feathered god of, you know, the feathered, you know, um, paleo sapiens and frozen, frozen in grief, frozen in insanity because the last specimen of that bird is just lost, frozen. Yeah. Uh, we never get to see him again. And that's not the only time a, a an, an endling specimen has just been lost in the mail, which is the most buck wild thing you can ever imagine showing up at the dead letter office. <laughs> that's insane. That's insane. It, yeah. It, Killed by lost in post. Yeah. Or, yeah. or you know, the the legacy, certainly. Yeah, right? absolutely. These are, these are things that, like, you know, it's been extremely enriching to create a book that can tap into these ideas and expose people to these ideas through the medium of D&D, through the medium of something that I hope people, you know, that gamers are certainly doing all the, all the time. Um, but it is also, you know, occasionally, occasionally kind of grim. And, and you find yourself wondering, like, how... How have I not been taught about this my entire life? How is this not something that is talked about around every d- dinner table every night? A bunch of the animals in this book went extinct in the last 10 years. Oh, wow. And they have cool story. These aren't all from like the 1800s. Um, we're, we're focusing on stuff that's in like recent memory, but it gets really, really recent. Um, I mean, gosh, when did Tuffy go extinct? Tuffy, the last fringe-limbed tree frog. Wow, that's chilling. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's true. Yeah, I mean, we are losing species at an alarming rate, at a, at a scarily alarming rate. It's it's instructive to think about it as it, it's instructive to look at them in in single numbers yeah. to really appreciate how each animal is unique in ways that the ecosystem just hasn't created again since, um, and not think about the total number and the rate of things because it quickly becomes this idea that like, you know, a hundred deaths is a tragedy, but a million is a statistic. Yeah. The same thing becomes true for extinctions. And I think, I think this sort of book that, you know, both educates you about biology as a whole, and then is very illustrative of these individual animals uh, is, is more effective than thinking about the broader statistics, <laughs> which is well, that's yeah. something we think about a lot is like, how do we, how do we convey these ideas in a way that doesn't make you just shut well, down see- I say when you when you don't no longer a number when you give them a story they become a personality and a background and you know um, they have meaning when you give yeah. them a well, story and that's the reason we like focusing on endlings and I don't say yeah. like but that's the reason it's you know instructive to focus on endlings um, the last thylacine was uh, Benjamin the last uh, uh, passenger pigeon was Martha they've got names uh, the last mm-hmm. um, uh, Pinta Island giant tortoise was uh, Lonesome George, so named because he didn't participate in his own breeding experiment. <laughs> Potentially, gay tortoise. Uh, yeah. Um, 
but you know, uh, you know, each of these, you know, personalities actually, so, so, you know, not, not to just directly plug a product, but, uh, we found a really lovely artist that made pins of these endlings oh, nice. um, of a bunch. And so there are these little, like really gorgeous enamel pins, um, that, uh, you know, we're selling as, as a tier on the Kickstarter. So you can, you can, you know, have a little pin of the last thylacine and it's this lovely illustration, uh, with the last, the, the, uh, the endlings name in the year that they went extinct. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. they're, they're really, really lovely. And, um, I think it was the night, the best sort of like with Kickstarters, it's often hard to find like products that fit the overall thing that you're doing without feeling too, you know, commercial. And and I think this was a, I'm, I'm really proud of how we, we tied that in. I, I'm, I think anyone, anybody who's interested in this book would be happy to pick up a pack of those enamel pens. Yeah. How are you finding the Kickstarter going? How's it, how's it been going for you? Well, you're, um, you're, kicking, I'm, you're kicking its ass at the minute. <laughs> I'm pretty thrilled about it. It's not the largest Kickstarter we've ever had, but it was a niche product. And and I think it's safe to say that we found our audience. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, right now we're at um, 24 days to go and we're at 87,000. Um, uh, you know, so for the audience listening at home, if you're at all interested in this project, to go to deadmonstermanual.com. It'll redirect you to the Kickstarter page. Um so uh, yeah, I think it's doing really, really well. We actually only planned up uh, um, updates, uh, like um, stretch goals up to a hundred thousand. Um, so uh, I am trying to figure out right now more animals we can put in the book. Um, all of the most of these stretch goals are we're going to add this specific animal, um, and uh, you know maybe I'll add a couple more endlings. Maybe I'll expand the uh, megafauna chapter uh, with a few big monsters. Um, so monsters animals but they they kind of act like we literally like megafauna from history are like giant animals in D. &D. like they're they're one-to-one -one in some cases um so you know those are those just get to be in the book unchanged like we just stat up how big they are <laughs> and how dangerous they are and that's the monster um so those are those are really neat um so i think uh, uh the kickstarter is going really well i think people have really been embracing this which is extremely extremely heartening to see because i was really worried it was just going to fly past people yeah um because it's it's so different i don't think anyone's ever done something quite like this before no i've never heard of any kind of book where this kind of looked at um extinctions as a for want of a better term, game mechanic. It's an amazing, I, like, I just, you know, talking about it now, I am like, I am totally putting in uh, a, 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 like, a, an animal of some sort, see if my party try to kill I'm, it, and then if about, they do... I'm about to say, Matt, I'm, I can get, I just hear your brain sparking with ideas here. Yeah, yeah, I'm just like, oh, I'm totally going to do that. I'm going to so, I'm I'm definitely adding something in. And, yeah, the, what, it's an amazing mechanic. So good. Yeah, I mean, I wish I'd almost played Draken as a endling, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I had him from a kind of a very much a subjugated background and everything. Would have thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to kind of gone all the way and have him as one the last? That would have been just cool. But it's a, it's a very simple. It was like you know, it, it's a very simple premise, and no, yeah. I don't think it, I, it's the first I've heard of it. And it's so good, and like I said, it's so powerful. Uh, even you know, for for player characters, and for the repercussions of what it might have on you know, uh, you know, the creatures that your party literally just just kill because they're on they're in their way and they don't have any thought behind it and stuff and it's such a they're really two really good mechanics that make yeah. your party think about things as they're going along yeah but also and, the stories they can tell purely from that premise is just fantastic i i think i think that absolutely and then you know you do just get at the end of the day a good 
bestiary of, of interesting monsters, right? And whether or not you really want to inject your campaign with that sort of pathos, that's up to you. But like, you know, hey, we've got, you know, the golden toad is a frog, a really, really vibrant yellow frog um, that went extinct not very long ago. And uh, we got to turn it into a Midas frog that turns you into gold. Uh, nice. <laughs> you know, so we, we just got a lot of really great monster ideas on the page inspired by these things. Um, so, so I think it works equally well just as a great D and D supplement. Um, and at this point I've had a ton of experience just writing solid D and D supplements. So I'm really proud of what we have here outside of this, this, you know, fantastic pathos that the bring, the book brings to the fore. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really thrilled about the reception it's gotten so far. And what's your timeline for proposed timeline for the, um, book and the Kickstarter? I want to have all of the PDFs done by the end of this year and then about a year for physical manufacturing. Okay. Um, every time we try to promise six months for the physical manufacturing side, it always ends up being closer to a year because of random delays and, um, you know, oh, well, they're out of products that you're, they're out of paper this month because of worldwide events or, okay, we need to go back and forth and get, you know, something correct. Um, so, so we're aiming for early 2025, but I think all of the content, will be done and out to people by the end of the year. That's the goal. Um, it's hard to say. It, it really depends on how many um, uh, additional stretch goals we hit yeah. and what we sort of end up promising. Um, we're being we're being cautious. We're not over promising things. You know, we've had a lot of experience running Kickstarters before, um, yeah. but would... it's one of those it's one of those rare circumstances in which the book isn't um, finished. So we have a lot of malleability in how we approach it. I see. I think I prefer conser- being conservative with times. Like I've got. I was look. I was thinking about this yesterday because I've got. I've got so many Kickstarters that have gone well over their time and are carrying on and they sort of kind of promised the world and, you know, you didn't get it. So when I've, I looked at yours and it's 2025, uh, I think, for like the full um, physical product and everything coming out, which I think is a good thing because it, it, it's it's managing people's expectations instead of kind of going, we'll have it out in three months and then you, you and, don't. And if uh, I can... If I can crush that timeline, like I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to work hard to do that, yeah. but, um, you know, we'll see, um, ultimately, like I'm, I'm, I want to make sure that it's done right. Um, and I want to make sure, and everybody, you know, pledges to it is going to get those digital products as we refine them and they get to see it and kind of give us that feedback. Um, so, you know, uh, the big thing is always the physical kind of distribution, um, fulfillment stuff. Uh, it, that always takes a sort of unpredictable amount of time. So, so, uh, you know, having a very long tail on it means ideally we'd like to get everything out by the end of the month. If people pledge, I'm going to send them what we have, you know, I'm going to polish up that 150 page prototype, trim a couple of the incomplete sections out and get, show you, you know, the, the, you know, I think we're almost, we're probably at 70 complete monster entries. I think we're over a hundred monsters in the book. I have to count that up. We have a lot. Um, it's it's kind of it's kind of a whole bunch. So I think people are going to really enjoy seeing what we have so far. Yeah, I mean, and will like the book be then once the once the Kickstarter is complete and all the backers have received their uh, pledges, will the book then be um, for sale through your Drive Your yeah. RPG and Mayhem Press? Yeah, and uh, directly on MayhemPress.com and also in other other places as we decide to put it up. Um, also, once the book is off Kickstarter, I can freely pledge to donate a percentage it's probably going to be 10 percent, maybe a little bit more to go directly to the center for biological diversity um we can't do that right now according to kickstarter's rules um but we're going to do that in the future so helping us get this over the over the finish line means we'll be able to donate 
you know, a substantial portion of what uh, oh, you know, we earn to conservation organizations. Because we did a we did a couple of charity based sort of Kickstarter things that weren't massive, like for cancer research and stuff like that. And we couldn't do it on Kickstarter because they wouldn't let us do charities and it was weird it's definitely it? it's definitely the culture that they've created and, and yeah. kind of what they're trying to aim for they're trying not to be gofundme which is either a positive or a negative thing but it's certainly the niche i don't begrudge kickstarter for doing that um you know i i get it um and i found you know the best solution that i can um if you want to donate right now go to the center for biological diversity i have a link on the kickstarter page uh, uh they deserve your support more than I do. Um, they are a they are a great organization that that fights like hell to to save animals from extinction. Um, so uh, I'm I'm thrilled to be working with them. I'm happy to push people over in that direction. Uh, if you're somebody who just wants to kind of like help spread awareness, back my Kickstarter. I think it's a really great way to introduce people, young and old. We haven't even talked about this as a product that you can just slide in front of a kid and leave it there, and then they will suddenly become way more interested in biology and animals overnight. Um, and, I, and I don't think that these ideas of extinction and, uh, you know, um, uh, the various things that people do to kind of drive extinction are too scary for kids. I think, I think no. it's a, a part of the world that people should be exposed to much younger. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think, I think I'm pretty excited about this as sort of an educational product as well. Yeah, Cause I mean, as soon as you, you embed um education elements in a role play there's a lot more to it because you get them directly involved and you and you engage the the, the people yeah I, I, there's this idea that we keep running into as we we were designing the book of this is exactly the same as a field guide like a book that is just full of birds or a book that is just full of things you might see in the woods um but it's a magical version of that right that's what a monster manual has always been and if only it was a mat, like the monster manual of D and D was an educational resource. So many kids would be so smart. <laughs> so I think, I think we found a really cool way to do that in a way that, yeah. that hopefully will make a difference and help people start thinking about these things from, from a pretty young age. Absolutely. And I mean, I just like the idea of like you know, the repercussions of like you know, the loss of a species on the, on a yeah. game world. And like you know, what we talk about in the, a curse or like there's some deep off as much i mean i remember playing back in the day vampire the masquerade where um one of the greatest crimes a vampire could commit would be diablery where they kind of at least not just drain another vampire but actually up drain their soul and everything into their very being and anybody that could see all of it could see these like kind of black lines through the aura denoting that they committed some horrific act so something like that just kind of like though to highlight though this person that 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 thing over there has just done the most horrendous thing and ended the entire species I'll, I'll put it in the book as a sidebar i think it's a really good idea yeah and it's it's fantastic that we we're able to kind of kind of talk about it and, and explore some of those angles because yeah i mean i think i think it needs to be a curse of some sort it needs to be something that is a marker and i don't think we have a good word for it like yeah. it's so profound because if you've got something like i i'm like again my, my brain is just kind of going i'm thinking you just put something in front of them say and if they if they do kill it then they get they get this curse they get this debuff and then they the only way they can get rid of that is basically um 
they have to follow a quest to get them redemption. You know, they will never get the rid of, fully get rid of the taint from it. So there will always be something, but they can kind of mitigate something, but they have to go through yeah. this sort of process. I don't, do yeah, that. I don't think they should ever be able to completely yeah. lose it. Yeah, yeah. Because that would almost lessen the impact. Yeah, of yeah exactly. It. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a real permanence yeah. to, to extinction in a way that, that, you know, in a way that like death doesn't really equate, right? Um, you know, you know, sacrificing yourself when you're the very last one is different than sacrificing yourself. Period. You know, killing the very last of a thing is different than just a murder. Um, it's it's a complicated question. Um, and uh, you know, I, the nice thing about D and D is that you know, I think these kind of prompt you to create quests that help mitigate that anxiety. And then you get to come to terms with how you mitigate that within your campaign world. But now you've created stories about extinction and about de-extinction and, and conservation and about never doing this again, which is all I wanted, right? Like if you can, if you can tell these stories at your table, you have prepared yourself in a real way to go tell those stories about the real world. Um, and I think a lot of D&D does that all the time. Right. We tell stories in which we're heroes and we're powerful and we can influence the world. And then we hope that that carries with us to do the same in the real world. So, uh, you know, that's that's the idea. That's the angle. It's high minded. It's potentially far too high minded. Um, oh, well, is it, but, if it's in too high, then too low. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one thing I want to ask as well is like you mentioned, like, you know, when this first was when the writer first approached you with this idea, he said it wasn't the right time. Why is now the right time for this idea? Oh, I mean, I didn't think it was, it was about um, whether or not he had the resources to make it happen. Right. That, you know, it was like, hey, you're not going to be able to, you know, monster manuals are so expensive and you don't want to cut too many corners if this is something where you need the art to be really perfect. Um, You know, I think, you know, I'm glad that we released this right before, you know, the D&D movie, I think that it's a good counterbalance karmically to, yeah. uh, you know, big Hollywood productions around our favorite game. Um, but, you know, our, it's always, it's it's the right time for this sort of thing as climate change is like continuing to accelerate the extinction crisis. You know, um, God, any, any days that we wait on this, there's always another news story about, you know, uh, um, another species that's really beloved in a part of the world going extinct. Uh, so there's, there's always this impetus to kind of, talk about it and, and spread awareness. Um, and, you know, our goal at the end of the day here is just to spread awareness, right? That's the, the best thing this book can do is educate and, and you know, help you experience something. So, yeah. Well, frankly, just, well, well, I'm just experiencing from, uh, something yeah. already. I'm, my brain's just kind of going, wow, I could do that. I could do that. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, was like, yeah, you can hear just like, I can see Mark's brain sparking away here in the background. <laughs> yeah. And one thing I love doing is fucking with my with my party members. Yeah. Very so, true. Yeah. So, um, oh, yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, man, it's, um, yeah, it, 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 it looks amazing. Uh, I, I seldom, I seldom get excited about even new D and D books to be honest, but I'm, I'm very excited about this one. Um, I think I think that because this is something new. Yeah, yeah. This is this is not just a move monster manual, or this is a you know something very new and different which we've not really seen before. To be fair. Yeah, I yeah it 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 looks awesome. Like the the concept, the the mechanics, just you know the the scope for it. Just, the concept, the concept, yeah, the concept is entirely yeah. new and fresh. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I, it was it was a real risk for us. I mean, it was a massive swing because we have no idea how many people were going to be both interested in D&D and this specific thing. So, uh, you know, if, if you're listening and you think, you know, this book is for you or somebody in your life, if you know a biology major, go to deadmonstermanual.com and put in a pledge. They will enjoy this, even if they're only tangentially aware of D&D. That's the sort of like, you know, the, the book is half really interesting stories from history that even hardcore biology people probably don't know. And they're pretty crazy. Like we've got an entire story about the Stevens Island Wren, which is an, uh, a, a little a little island bird that was rumored to go extinct because of a single tabby cat named Tibbles. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a the story's actually a little more complicated than that. But there is weird back uh, backroom dealings and people like selling the specimens at trumped up prices because they're they're you know embroiling the british media in tales about this bird there is a lot happening in history at any given moment when you're looking at these things there's the stories are so fascinating and they're they're so crazy it's hard to believe them like they belong in a fantasy book they belong in a monster manual this is the, this is the correct place for them um so it, it's really a, it's really a thrill to kind of to kind of bring this to people yeah. Okay. Well, I, I'm totally. I'm. I'm buying into. I'm. Um, uh, as soon as we finish here, you're, mess back in this. Yeah, you got, this you got, you got another you. backer right there. It'll be number. I'll be number. What are we on now? Currently, uh, you're 987? on nine eighty-seven. Nine eighty-seven. Yeah. Nine eighty. Wow. That is yeah. a very. That's fantastic. I, yeah. I'm really thrilled. Um, I'm hoping we get through a um, hundred thousand pretty soon. Oh. We're at, we're at eighty-seven right now. Um, you know, that would be, that would be an unqualified success for me. And we still have so much time left. Um, uh, how much, how much time is left by the 24 way? Days. Uh, 24 days, 24 oh, days. Wow. So we, yeah. We, yeah, we only launched last week, so we're doing really, really well. Yeah. That's um, yeah, given that's been about a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, have a, I have a good friend who's running a Kickstarter right now. Um, we're not going to catch him. Uh, it's Hit Point Press. They, they're doing their book of big bads. Um, but I want to give them a run for their money. Um, I actually wrote three of their big bads. So if you're interested in big bad evil guys, they have a, they have a project going on right now. Um, you know, I, they're fantastic. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, I want to see, I want to see us really, you know, uh, I want our biology people to really show up and, and prove that these sorts of products can be viable. That's the way, that's the way we get more, huge swings from little companies like us amazing well man um i appreciate your time again um it's super interesting um you've got another you've definitely got another backer from me uh and hopefully you'll hit that one 100k mark um soon and exceed it and uh we can only hope uh yeah. get more from it but um amazing absolutely amazing like uh my, yeah, my thank you guys so much going, my brain's just going thank you guys so much for having me yeah, yeah anytime um, it is always a thrill yeah cheers man um and i'll let you i'll let you know how it goes uh <laughs> if i drop one in on uh on my party <laughs> and see what they what they do um but yeah I, I appreciate it man um so for for me tonight um i've been matt gary with me has been peter ray allison good night everyone and our guest and i call it